The House will come back into session on Tuesday and stay in session through Friday. The Senate comes back into session today. They'll stay in session through Thursday. Last week in the House, they came back to work on Monday. They took up and passed two bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House took up and passed another two bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House got down to the business of voting to fund the government. First up was a measure that included both the rule to govern floor consideration of the omnibus spending bill to fund the government for the remaining seven months of this fiscal year, and a provision to extend the current continuing resolution for another four days through March 11 to give the Senate, I'm sorry, through March 15, to give the Senate enough time to deal with the omnibus spending bill in case that body couldn't come to agreement on time requirements. That resolution passed. Then the House took up the omnibus spending package that had been negotiated. The bill was divided into two sections. The first section was essentially the defense and national security spending provisions. The second section was everything remaining. Not surprisingly, a lot more Republicans voted for the first section than for the second section. Both sections passed and the bill was sent on to the Senate and then they were done. This week in the House, as I said, they'll come back tomorrow with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up 10 bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday and Thursday, the House is scheduled to consider H.R. 963, the FAIR Act of 2022, and H.R. 2116, the Crown Act of 2022. At some point next week, I anticipate, I'm sorry, this week, I anticipate the House will take up H.R. 7007. That's the emergency supplemental funding for COVID that Jenny Beth was just talking about. Last week in the Senate, they came back to work on Monday. They voted to invoke cloture on H.R. 3076, the Postal Services Reform Act. On Tuesday, the Senate passed the bill by a vote of 79 to 19. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Mary L. Pagan to be a deputy U.S. trade representative. On Wednesday, the Senate took a break so both Democrats and Republicans could attend party retreats here in the District of Columbia. On Thursday, the Senate took up SJ Res 35, a joint resolution providing for congressional disapproval of the proposed foreign military sale to the government of Egypt of certain defense articles and services. The resolution was rejected by a vote of 19 to 80. Then the Senate voted to confirm Maria L. Pagan to be a deputy U.S. trade representative. Then the Senate turned to the omnibus spending measure that had passed the House on Wednesday. First up was a vote on an amendment offered by Mike Lee to block funding for enforcement of the remaining federal vaccine mandates against health care workers, military personnel, federal contractors, and federal employees. This was one of our calls to action last week, and we really pressed hard. Unfortunately, we came up one vote short, and the amendment failed by a vote of 49 to 50. Then we had a vote on an amendment offered by Senator Mike Braun of Indiana to ban funding of any earmarks. That amendment failed by a vote of 35 to 64. Then the Senate voted on an amendment offered by Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana to provide for emergency funding for disaster relief efforts in the wake of certain hurricanes. That amendment failed by a vote of 35 to 64. Then, having considered and rejected all amendments, the Senate voted on the omnibus government spending bill. The bill passed by a vote of 68 to 31. And then, by voice vote, the Senate confirmed the following people to the following positions. Corey Wiggins to be federal co-chairperson of the Delta Regional Authority. Christopher R. Hill to be U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Serbia. Peter J. Beshar to be general counsel of the Department of the Air Force. 
George J. Sunis to be U.S. ambassador to Greece, Randy Charno Levine to be U.S. ambassador to the Portuguese Republic, Laura Farnsworth Dogu to be U.S. ambassador to the Republic of Honduras, and N. Nicholas Perry to be U.S. ambassador to Jamaica. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, they'll come back to work today with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on cloture on the nomination of Shalanda D. Young to be director of the Office of Management and Budget. Then, based on the majority leader's cloture filings, I anticipate the Senate will consider the nomination of Susan Swee Grundman of Virginia to be a member of the Federal, Re- the Federal Labor Relations Authority for a term of five years, expiring July 1, 2025. In addition, Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul will try to force a vote on his resolution ending the federal mask mandates on public transportation and airplanes. That's the second call to action that Jenny Beth was just talking about. Now to inflation. The Bureau of Labor Statistics released the February inflation report on Thursday, and it was worse than expected. Year to year, inflation was up 7.9 percent, marking another 40-year high. President Biden took advantage of the opportunity to blame inflation on Russian dictator Vladimir Putin's decision to invade Ukraine and labeled inflation, quote, Putin's price hike, end quote. Now, one of two things is true. Either Biden knows this is false and he is deliberately lying to us, or he believes it is true, in which case he is not competent. Either way, it raises troubling questions about the man's fitness to serve as president. Let me explain. Blaming Putin for the rise in U.S. inflation misses the mark by more than a year. On the day Joe Biden was sworn in as president, the average price for a gallon of gas in the United States was $2.38. On the day before Vladimir Putin's tanks rolled into Ukraine, the average price for a gallon of gas in the United States was $3.53. That's a 48% price hike that took place during the 13 months of the Biden presidency that occurred before the Red Army stepped across the borders of Ukraine, and it had nothing to do with Russia. So what caused prices to rise that fast? Well, it had everything to do with the American economy responding to the energy and climate policies deliberately undertaken and imposed by the Biden administration. And here's the worst part. These policies were implemented as part of a deliberate plan to reduce U.S. dependence on fossil fuels and shift to renewables, that is, so-called green energy. The surge in inflation began on the day that Biden took the oath of office. Upon returning to the White House, he signed a series of executive orders regarding energy and climate, each of which had the intended effect of sending signals to stakeholders. He signed off. He signed an order to rejoin the Paris Climate Accords, committing the U.S. to significantly cut greenhouse gas emissions in coming years. He signed an order revoking the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline that would have transferred oil from Canada to U.S. refineries and immediately threw tens of thousands of people out of work and closed businesses all over. He issued a moratorium on the leasing program for gas and oil activities in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. He reinstated President Obama's Executive Order 13754 and the December 20, 2016 Presidential Memorandum designating as off-limits certain areas of the Outer Continental Shelf in the Arctic from mineral leasing. He repealed Trump executive orders that imposed limits on federal government environmental reviews. He suspended the Interior Department's authority to issue approvals for oil and gas development on federal lands. 
including drilling permits and leases, and he announced plans to almost triple the percentage of the nation's land controlled by the federal government. The message he sent was loud and clear and heard. Under his leadership, the U.S. would move away from energy production based on fossil fuels. It should surprise no one that the effect of these policies taken together would be higher prices for energy. Making matters worse is Biden's apparent response to his declared ban on Russian oil imports, which account for about 8% of U.S. imports. Instead of calling up the heads of America's largest oil companies and asking what the federal government could do to help them produce more energy more quickly, he sent out underlings to reach out to the leaders of Venezuela, a man Biden does not even recognize as the official leader of that country, and, get this, Iran from which we cannot even legally import oil because Iranian oil is sanctioned to see if he could get them to send more oil our way. When the White House attempted to arrange phone calls between Biden and the leaders of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, both leaders declined the offer of the phone call. We didn't have this problem under President Trump. Under President Trump, in fact, in 2019, for the first time in 62 years, U.S. energy production exceeded consumption. What did President Trump know that President Biden doesn't? Apparently, a lot. Now to an FBI audit. There was a stunning report in the Washington Times on Friday of last week revealing that a 2019 FBI audit obtained by the newspaper showed that, quote, FBI agents violated agency rules at least 747 times in 18 months while conducting investigations involving politicians, candidates, religious groups, news media, and others, unquote. That turned out to be more than two compliance errors per sensitive investigative matter reviewed by the FBI's auditors. Among the errors caught by the auditors, quote, agents' failure to obtain approval from senior FBI officials to start an investigation, failure to document a necessary legal review before opening an investigation, and failure to tell prosecutors what they were doing, unquote. The audit was discovered by a fellow at the Cato Institute as a result of litigation Cato had brought against the FBI for access to government records. The audit said 70% of the 747 compliance errors were, quote, related to approvals, notifications, and administrative matters, end quote. The audit said there were 35 full investigations and four preliminary investigations that were launched without the approval of an FBI special agent in charge. Stay tuned. More on the Breyer replacement search. Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, President Biden's choice to replace retiring Justice Stephen Breyer, continued her courtesy meetings with senators of both parties on Capitol Hill. She has yet to meet with a Republican who has committed to voting for her, But on the other hand, she also has yet to meet with a Democrat who has yet said anything to indicate he or she might vote against her. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin of Illinois still plans to kick off her confirmation hearings next Monday, one week from today. Those hearings are scheduled to run until next Thursday. It is Majority Leader Schumer's hope that she can be confirmed and seated on the court by the end of April. Now, more on that government spending bill to give you the backstory. 
160 days into the new fiscal year, Congress finally passed an omnibus appropriations bill to fund the government for the remaining 205 days of the fiscal year. And even after five months of negotiations, House and Senate leaders couldn't pull off the vote without a hitch. A month ago, we're told, the so-called four corners, that is the chairman and ranking member of the Senate and House Appropriations Committees, came to agreement on top-line numbers for both defense and non-defense discretionary spending. They kept those numbers to themselves, not even sharing them with chairman of the relevant authorizing committees. They were poised to bring an omnibus bill to the floor of both houses about a month ago. But then a couple of things intervened. Russia invaded Ukraine, and the Biden administration submitted a supplemental funding request for COVID recovery funding. At first, the Biden administration sent up a request for $7 billion for Ukraine, and they were talking about $30 billion in additional COVID relief funding. The $30 billion was quickly knocked down to $22.5 billion. By the time they were ready to vote, the Ukraine aid request had been bumped up to $13.6 billion, and the COVID supplemental had been cut further down to $15 billion. But the Republicans had balked at the COVID funding and refused to borrow money to pay for it. They insisted that it be funded by rescinding previously appropriated but unspent COVID relief funding that had been set aside to be spent by the states. That worked for Republicans, but not for the House Democrats who represented about 30 states that were going to have funds clawed back. They refused to vote for it and told the House Democrat leadership they had a serious problem with the plan just hours before the vote was scheduled to take place. So the House Democrat leadership responded by pulling the COVID funding request from the bill, saying they would come back for another bite at the apple on the COVID funding in the near future. They're going to have a problem when they do that, though. As a regular spending bill, it will require 60 votes in the Senate to break a filibuster, and Republicans have just made clear they're not big on more COVID funding. Once the bill had the COVID funding provision removed, it was brought to the floor of the House, where in a nod to Republicans, the question was divided. That is, the bill was voted on in two sections. The first section, as we discussed above, was the section dealing with the defense and national security and law enforcement titles. The second section was the remaining mostly domestic discretionary spending. Both passed the House and then were sent to the Senate. The outlook in the Senate was a bit more dicey. In that body, just about everything that is done is done by unanimous consent. Consequently, one individual has a lot more power to gum up the works by simply refusing to give consent. In the matter of the consideration of the omnibus spending bill, that could have taken the form of refusing to agree to time requests. By the time the bill had arrived from the House, even though it had been sent as a message, if no agreement on timing were reached and the leadership had to spend all the necessary time on cloture and debate that was called for under the rules of the Senate, the body would not have been able to take up the bill before the expiration of the current continuing resolution at midnight Friday night, and the government would have gone into a temporary partial government shutdown. Under uh, Utah Republican Senator Mike Lee was adamant that he be given a vote on his amendment blocking funding for the remaining federal vaccine mandates. Indiana Republican Senator Mike Braun was insistent that he be given a vote on his amendment banning earmarks. And Louisiana Republican Senator John Kennedy wanted very much to be given a vote on his amendment to provide more disaster relief funding. Each of them held a whole card. By refusing to consent to bypassing the regular time constraints, they could get what they wanted. And they did. Each got what he wanted, a vote on his amendment. 
That agreement, surprisingly, came on Wednesday. So Majority Leader Schumer scheduled the votes and the Senate got to work. By Wednesday night, the amendments had been voted on and the bill was brought to the floor for a vote on final passage. In the end, the bill funded domestic discretionary spending to the tune of $730 billion, a 6.7% increase over last year's funding levels, and defense spending to the tune of $782 billion, a 5.6% increase over last year's funding levels, and a huge increase over President Biden's original request of just $715 billion. The bill also reauthorized the Violence Against Women Act and brought back the practice of earmarking funds for the first time in more than a decade. The bill appropriated $13.6 billion in military and humanitarian aid for Ukraine, but did not include the COVID supplemental request, which will have to be voted on separately. Now to the Iran nuclear deal. We talked about this a bit last week. For the last 11 months, the original signatories to the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, otherwise known as the Iran nuclear deal, that is the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Russia, China, the European Union, and Iran, have been meeting in Vienna to discuss whether or not they can put the agreement back together after President Trump withdrew the U.S. from the accord in 2018 and Iran pulled out shortly thereafter. As of a week ago, the negotiators had returned home, saying the remaining matters to be decided would be decided by the U.S. and Iran. But Russia threw a wrench into the works last weekend when the Russian foreign minister demanded guarantees from, quote, at least the secretary of state level, that the sanctions that the U.S. has imposed on Russia for its invasion of Ukraine would not prevent Russia from fulfilling its role under the renewed JCPOA. Because, you see, one of the things Russia is supposed to do under the terms of the agreement is to take enriched uranium from Iran and store it away. They don't do that because they're nice guys. They do that to make money. Yes, there's money to be had in storing enriched uranium. And given how difficult it's going to be for Russia to earn hard currency on the international markets in the coming months, they want to make sure they can still earn money from Iran. The U.S. says the demand is irrelevant, but if it's going to keep Russia's signature off the final document, it's not irrelevant at all. The Iranians are upset with their patron, Russia. Iran is counting on having sanctions lifted so they can start selling their oil on the international market again. And they know Russia's demand is delaying the final wrap-up of the deal. But they can't be too mad because Russia is one of their few international allies. Maybe the other parties to the deal will ask China to step in and take the enriched uranium and leave Russia out of the final deal. As it stands now, the final signatures are delayed, and we don't know if or when they'll get this worked out. It could come in a single day, or it could take weeks, or it could blow up the deal entirely. Jenny Beth published a column on this subject last week. You can find it in the suggested reading. Now to Russia and Ukraine. Vladimir Putin's war of conquest against Ukraine entered its third week, and it's not going as well for Russia as he would like. His troops have apparently run into major resistance from Ukrainian forces, so the Russians have taken to launching ordnance from afar, targeting civilian infrastructure. Meanwhile, here in the United States, after spending last week resisting congressional pressure to announce a ban on U.S. imports of Russian oil, on Tuesday, President Biden declared that the U.S. would, start import, would stop importing oil from Russia. And after asking Speaker to Pelosi, 
Speaker Pelosi to remove from a bipartisan congressional Russian sanctions bill a provision revoking Russia's permanent normal trade relations status, what we once called most favored nation status. On Friday, President Biden announced the U.S. would revoke Russia's permanent normal trade relations status. What is still at issue is resupply of fighter aircraft. In a Zoom call last weekend with 300 members of Congress, Ukraine President Zelensky said the most important thing he needed was fighter aircraft. The Polish Air Force still flies MiG-29s, the fighter aircraft flown in Ukraine. For more than a week now, there have been ongoing discussions over whether or not the Polish government would donate used MiG-29s to Ukraine and then have them replaced by U.S.-supplied F-16 fighter aircraft. At first, the U.S. government seemed to indicate it would happily replace those Russian jets. The holdup was on the Polish side. Then the Polish government announced it would happily fly the fighter planes to the U.S. Air Force Base at Ramstein, Germany, and let the U.S. decide what to do with the planes. The U.S. government didn't like this idea, and spokesmen labeled it untenable. What's going on here is simple. The Biden administration is scared of escalating the war and putting U.S. military forces in direct conflict with Russian military forces. The U.S. government is so scared of Putin that it won't even let Ukrainian pilots fly Polish fighter aircraft into Ukrainian's sovereign airspace from a U.S. Air Force base in Germany for fear Putin would declare that an act of war. Frankly, I cannot make sense of this. The U.S. government has for years been supplying the Ukrainian military with Javelin anti-tank missiles and Stinger shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missiles. We have been resupplying the Ukrainians with these weapons for some time now, including during the current conflict. And we haven't been insistent that the resupply program be undertaken covertly. So if the idea is to keep Putin from knowing that we're supplying weapons to kill Russians, the cat is out of the bag already. Moreover, the airspace we're talking about is Ukrainian airspace. That's under the sovereign control of the Ukrainian government, and we recognize that sovereignty. We are not talking about sending U.S. planes or U.S. pilots or even Polish planes and Ukrainian pilots into Russian airspace. By refusing to allow Ukrainian pilots to fly planes from German airspace or Polish airspace into Ukrainian airspace because we're scared of provoking Putin, we are effectively allowing Putin to dictate to us what we can and cannot do. That's not a good signal to send to Putin or to Chinese dictator Xi Jinping either, for that matter. This morning, Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer announced that Ukrainian President Zelensky will address the Congress virtually on Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Meanwhile, on another front, Western intelligence sources are promoting a narrative that Russia appears to be getting ready to launch either a chemical or biological warfare attack against Ukraine. As part of the preparation for that attack, Russian intelligence services, they say, are conducting disinformation campaigns regarding U.S. military bioweapons research labs in Ukraine. I'm sure you've all heard or read the stories about how the entire cause of this conflict is the Russian attempt to prevent the release of chemical or biological warfare agents against Russia from Ukraine. Trying to figure out what's going on in Ukraine is really difficult. There are any number of sources of information, each of them promoting their own narrative. Some are more credible than others. Some sources have histories of offering solid information, others not so much. I'm reminded of the old riddle. What's the difference between a Christian, a Marxist, and a journalist? 
A Christian is someone who asks us to believe that which we cannot see. A journalist is someone who asks us not to believe. I'm sorry, a Marxist is someone who asks us not to believe that which we see all too clearly. And a journalist is someone who allows us to see that which he wishes us to believe. So to answer the question of what's what with U.S. military bioweapons research labs in Ukraine, I'm going to turn to Alex Berenson, who has, to my mind at least, established his credibility with coverage of the COVID pandemic. He even wrote a book about it called Pandemia that I'm sure many of you have read. So here's Alex Berenson from his Friday Substack. Quote, now about those biolabs. Back in the good old days, the Soviet Union ran a large biological weapons program. Sometimes bad things happened with that program, notably in 1979, when an anthrax leak from a laboratory in Sverdlovsk killed about 100 civilians. The Soviets lied. Shocker, I know, and blamed tainted meat for the deaths. Then in 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. The end of history, the triumph of democratic capitalism, yada, 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 yabba, dabba, do. Meanwhile, all those biological weapons labs and nuclear weapons labs, too, and the scientists who worked for them were now the property of a defunct and bankrupt state, which makes them our problem. Basically, we had to figure out a way to put a bunch of proud scientists on welfare so they wouldn't be tempted to sell their services to the highest bidder. We actually worked with the Russians to de-enrich the uranium in their nuclear warheads for a while, which was a pretty cool program. Figuring out how to pay off the bioweapons guys was trickier. You can't de-enrich anthrax, and those offensive biological weapons programs weren't supposed to be happening anyway. In 1972, we and the Soviets had agreed to ban them. Instead, we paid to upgrade the security at the labs and found ways for scientists to keep studying pathogens and chasing potential outbreaks, not just in the Ukraine, but all over the former Soviet Union and then in other countries, too. As the Defense Threat Reduction Agency explains, quote, these efforts include facilitating the construction or renovation of more than 100 laboratory and storage facilities and coordinating more than 300 cooperative research projects aimed at safely studying, detecting, and diagnosing especially dangerous pathogens, end quote. The boys at the Pentagon call this defense in depth, meaning better to catch the nasties over there than over here. None of this was illegal or hidden, though some of the details of the programs were classified, and it's been successful more or less. You can tell from all the people who didn't die in the great anthrax attack of 2019 that didn't happen. Meanwhile, even as we spent billions to keep ourselves safe from foreign scientists, Tony Fauci and the boys pushed gain-of-function research to turn harmless coronavirus into mortal threats. But that's a story for another day. The call is coming from inside the house. Nor did the Russians have any problem with this long-running effort until now. Why now? Come on, do I even need to explain? You may have noticed the Kremlin's little adventure in Ukraine is not going exactly as planned. The Ukrainians are not cooperating with the first Russian excuse for the war, that Vladimir's men needed to liberate Ukraine from its Jewish president and his evil Nazi army. Say it fast and it makes even less sense. Now the Russians need a new excuse for their war and its crimes. It doesn't have to be a good excuse. It just, have to be, it just has to be something they and the Chinese can say that it is a little less absurd than Zelensky drinks the blood of Russian children morning, noon, and night. They may yet get there. 
Thus, the talk of biolabs and bioweapons, which forces the media to explain that Ukrainian labs weren't actually doing whatever it is the Russians are hinting they were doing. The Russian argument works particularly well because the same media outlets now truthfully explaining that Ukraine isn't cooking up anthrax spent the last two years claiming SARS-CoV-2 didn't leak from a Chinese lab, which doesn't help their credibility. However, I didn't spend the last year claiming SARS-CoV-2 didn't leak from a Chinese lab. And I'm telling you, scouts honor, this is nonsense. Don't fall for it. Yes, the media is desperate for an excuse to ignore COVID going forward, and that's one reason they're devoting so much attention to Ukraine. But the war is real, and it's a pure power grab, the likes of which Europe has not seen in some time. And that's our Washington Report for this week.